I want you to find several places in the Bible tonight. Remember what we've been doing on Sunday nights is material that uh, subject matter that shouldn't be new to any of us. We've just been talking about just very basic foundational stuff. Prayer, Bible study, witnessing, uh, things that are just very basic to the Christian life. And uh, tonight uh, we actually uh, close out this uh, 10-week series talking about servanthood, saved to serve. We know in the Old Testament that election was for service. It wasn't just to put Israel in a privileged position, but actually uh, election was for service, that they would be a light to the nations. And we know in the New Testament in the church, uh, that's the same thing that goes for us. God has left us behind uh, for a ministry. We have a mission to the world and we have a ministry. We are to be servants. Save to serve, and so we're going to look at that tonight. The fact that we don't live uh, unto ourselves, but we live unto the Lord and the Lord's people. So find John chapter 13 and uh, Mark chapter 9 and Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians chapter 12. And uh, don't worry, I'll mention those passages again, and they're on your study guide. But again, just talking about very foundational issues tonight, saved to serve. Don McCullough writes in Waking from the American Dream, he says, During World War II, England decided to increase its production of coal. Winston Churchill called together labor leaders to enlist their support. At the end of his presentation, he asked them to picture in their minds a parable which he knew would be held in the city square after the war. He said, first would come the sailors who had kept the sea lanes open. Then would come the soldiers who had gone on to defeat Rommel uh, in Africa. And then would come the pilots who had driven the German planes from the sky. And last of all, he said, would come a long line of sweat-stained, soot-streaked men in miners' caps. And somebody would say, and where were you during the critical days of the war? And from 10,000 tongues would come the answer, we were deep in the earth with our faces to the coal. Folks, not all jobs are glamorous, not all jobs are visible, but it's the people with their faces to the coal that keep things running in the kingdom of God. Amen? Now, we know that our culture values prestige and power and money and strength. How do we judge people oftentimes? We judge them by their title, by their position, by the amount of money they have. We shouldn't, but oftentimes this is how men uh, judge other men. Or we judge them by the number of people they control or they're over in business. But we need to remember that Jesus said, In my kingdom, things are going to be different. He said, The Gentiles love to lord it over you. 
They love to have mastery over you. He said, but in the kingdom of God, who is it that's the greatest? It's the last of all and the servant of all. And so Jesus really took the value system of the world and kind of turned it upside down, didn't he? We need to remember that in the church. Now, again tonight, as I mentioned, we're going to look at another foundational issue in the Christian life. Again, we're going over stuff, elementary, 101 type stuff, not new to any of us. And servanthood is certainly one of those foundational topics. You know, if you were going to cook up a nice dish, uh, you might have all kinds of special herbs and spices uh, in with the dish. But folks, don't forget the main ingredients, right? Well, servanthood is a main ingredient in the Christian life. Now, let's see what Jesus taught and modeled about servanthood. In John 13, it says, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour uh, had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped about him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, You'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, The one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean And you're clean, but not every one of you, for he knew who was to betray him, and that's why he said, not all of you are clean. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should also do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Well, look at his example here. Look at how he models servanthood. Now keep in mind, he's giving final instructions. In in John 13, Jesus' public ministry is over now. For the remainder of John's gospel, he's going to have Jesus in the upper room teaching the disciples. Then in John 17, Jesus is going to go out and pray to the Father that great high priestly prayer, and then beginning in John 18 and following begins Passion Week. 
in the life of Jesus. But the public ministry of Jesus is over now. And he's with the disciples in the upper room. Now the task that Jesus did here would be the task that the lowliest servant in the household would do. They would have different servants, a wealthy household anyway, would have different servants of different rankings. And the lowest, the bond servant, when all the guests came in and they were getting ready for the meal and for fellowship together, it would be the lowest servant in the household that would wash the feet of all the guests. Dusty roads back then, they wore sandals, so their feet got dirty. And it was customary when you came into somebody's house for a meal, uh, somebody would wash the feet. It was just a common courtesy. And the staggering thing here is that Jesus gets up and assumes this role. He's stooping and washing feet. And here are the disciples on the other hand, they're proud. Some, one of them should have done this job by now. Hendrickson, one commentator, explains it's time for the meal. The feet have not been washed. Somebody should have done it. No one moves. No one budges. Luke makes it clear it was during the same time that the disciples were arguing who was going to be first among them. And then you remember the mama of James and John, right? I mean, everybody's got to love a mama. She said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, can one of my boys sit on your left and one on your right? So they're all thinking about prestige and position and power. And in that context, Jesus gets up and assumes the role of the lowest servant in the household. Now, folks, what Jesus is illustrating here is what we've got to do. If we're going to be followers of Christ, not only must we be fishers of men, he said, if, uh, if you'll follow me, I'll make you fishers of men, but if we're going to follow him, likewise, we've got to be servants. And it's a lesson to us that the Christian life isn't about us. It's about God and others. Even if it involves things that I don't always want to do, the Christian life is still about God and others. These words that begin here in chapter 13 were for the sake of those who belong to Him. Again, He's not addressing the multitudes now, and that's very important to understand. He is addressing those who are His disciples. He's working with the twelve here. And he is illustrating to them what it is going to mean to be a member of the Christian community. The Christian community is going to be categorically different from anything they were accustomed to seeing in the Greco-Roman world. You know, when people look at the church, they ought to see a different kind of community, right? There ought to be a distinction that they notice about the body of Christ. 
And it's based on the fact that we're not our own anymore. As Paul said in 1 Corinthians 6, we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been bought with the price. We're to glorify God in our bodies. We belong to Christ now. And so to follow Him means that we've got to serve. We've got a mission to the world and likewise we've got a ministry. And folks, if we miss that, we have stumbled somewhere along the line in basic theology 101. God doesn't save anybody to leave them the way they are so they can do anything they want to do. God did not save you just to to keep you from hell and to bless your life. Now that's the benefit we get. But God didn't just save you and me so we'd have our fire insurance policy. He saved us for a purpose. And so we, we see in the Word of God that salvation is to shape and reshape and redefine everything about us. We need to realize God's ownership of our lives. We need to be servants. Now, keep in mind who's here. All the disciples. If I called on you right now to stand and name all of them by name, could you do that? Gavin, stand up and name for us all the disciples. Can you do that? I'm picking on Gavin. He's from Michigan. I can't help but pick on him. But, I mean, there'd be names like Simon Peter and Thomas and Simon the Zealot and Andrew and Matthew and James and John and James the son of Alphaeus and Philip and Bartholomew Bartholomew and Thaddeus and one more, Judas. Even Judas got his feet washed by the Lord. The Lord knew Judas was going to betray him. But he still washed the feet of Judas. None of them deserved to have their feet washed by the Lord. Judas least of all, but Jesus did it anyway. And then he talks here about how it's a blessing to serve, how it will change Your life. There in verse 17 he said, if you do these things you'll be blessed. Notice what he didn't say. He didn't say, if you know this you'll be blessed. He said, if you do this you'll be blessed. The blessing comes in the doing. Now we've we've got it backwards, don't we? We want the blessing, then we'll decide what we'll do. Jesus said, no, you lose your life for my sake, you serve, and then comes the blessing. And Jesus modeled what he taught. He said, the Son of Man did not come to be ministered to, but to minister and give his life as a ransom. So again, if we're following Jesus, we're going to be a servant. If you and I are not servants, then who are we following? Well, Jesus not only modeled it, but then Jesus spoke about something very important in Mark chapter 9. Not only did he model servanthood, but he taught something very important on it. 
And that very important lesson is that attitude matters. Attitude. It says in verse 33 of Mark 9, they came to Capernaum and when he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent for on the way, they'd argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve and said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. And he took a child and put him in the midst of them and taking them in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives such uh, one such child in my name receives me, and whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Where do things usually begin in a man's life? In his heart, in his mind, right? Attitude's important, isn't it? And so it's no wonder that right off the bat, Jesus addresses what is to be the attitude of somebody who claims to be a follower of Christ. Now Jesus, if we were to go back and read earlier in this chapter, we would see that Jesus had been discussing with them about his impending death and how he was going to be rejected and killed. And they didn't understand. Well, from there, they get up and they're on their way to Capernaum. And during the walk to Capernaum, there's this discussion going on. They're arguing with one another about who's going to be the greatest among them. Now, I guess maybe his talk about his death had sort of set that off because they're sitting there thinking, whoa, everything's about to come to fruition. He's talking about the end here, so I guess he's about to set up his kingdom. And he's going to appoint leaders. And, and so that's probably Jesus' discussion of his death. What was going to happen to him when he got to Jerusalem probably got them talking about where was their place going to be when all these things happened. But this is what they're thinking in their minds. They're thinking about what's our place going to be now? What's our place going to be? Now, folks, lest we be too critical of them, we need to remember there's something in the human heart, all human hearts, that we, we want to think about us, don't we? What's my place going to be? What am I going to get out of all this? In sinful human nature, everybody kind of thinks along that lines, don't we? I mean, let's be honest. And they're thinking about that. They get in the house and Jesus asks them and whoo, they're quiet. They clam up. They're embarrassed. They didn't know the Lord had overheard all this, but God knows everything. He knows our hearts. And so Jesus used that as an opportunity to teach them a very important lesson. That the greatest is the servant of all and the least of all. And then he took a child and stood a child in their midst. And as I've told you before, I think that child, I mean, you, you think in your mind, what's that really have to do with it? has everything to do with it. Because a child, how would you serve a child? Would you serve a child thinking you're going to get something back in return? No. And so what Jesus is illustrating here is that, that we serve out of the purest of motives 
not expecting to get anything in return from anybody. It is enough that God knows what we do. We do what we do for the Lord. And if nobody ever pats you on the back in this lifetime, guess what? Don't worry about it. Our reward comes from the Lord. And so there are to be no hidden motives whatsoever in our service. Because sometimes we'll do that. We'll, we'll give something or do some, volunteer for something maybe because of some attention. And there's to be none of that. We're to serve out of the purest and the humblest of motives. So the attitude. What's our attitude as we serve? Do we serve with the right attitude? Are we serving and are we serving in the right spirit? Or do we have a haughty spirit or negative and critical spirit? Or are we just serving humbly? Well, let's see what Paul taught about servanthood. Certainly when we talk about the New Testament, we think first about Jesus and then what comes to mind is what Paul say about it. And so look over at Romans 12, 1 and 2. Paul says there, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Now Paul's been teaching in Romans 1 through 8 about right doctrine. And then beginning in chapter 12, he's going to start talking about right living. If you don't put into practice what you confess you believe, then you've missed the whole point, right? Right doctrine ought to result in right living. And so that's why Paul's letters, typically the first part of his letters, always deal with doctrinal matters. And the last section of Paul's letters always deal with practical and ethical matters. How we live out our theology. The book of Romans is no different. He says here that right living involves making a holy presentation of yourself to God. It's a presentation of your life all of you and he makes five very powerful points about this it's to be a permanent sacrifice he says to present and 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 it's the the tense in the greek text where i where i say that it's to be a permanent sacrifice because the tense suggests this is to be a once for all life-governing, life-dominating attitude. A once-for-all decision that I'm going to put my life on the altar to be a servant. It's personal also. Not only permanent, but personal. He says, I beseech you, brethren, to offer your bodies... Now, he's talking to the church at large here, but it is a decision he is calling on every member to make. Now, the problem with too many Christians is they're just sort of nominally involved. Remember that illustration I told you one time about the chicken and the pig? 
He said, you know, the farmer's been pretty good to us. We ought to cook him a meal, show our appreciation. I'll lay some eggs in the morning, fry them up, and you take care of the bacon. And the pig said, whoa, wait a minute now. For you, that's just a contribution, but for me, it's a real sacrifice. Sometimes we don't want to make a real sacrifice. We just kind of want to be nominally involved, right? Just make a little contribution. But Romans chapter 12 is talking about that wholehearted commitment. Folks, think about this. We so often think in terms of what we can receive from God. Again, this is upside down thinking. The Bible says we're to concentrate on what we present to God and then the receiving will come. You receive based on what you give. Family was visiting the church on one occasion. They left in the car going home. The parents were aggravated. Dad said, that's the worst sermon I've ever heard. The mom said, the music was terrible. And the daughter said, nobody spoke to us. That was the most unfriendly church. And the little boy sitting beside the dad when the offering plate came around said, Oh, dad, but you and mom got to admit something. That wasn't such a bad service for that those two quarters I saw you throw in the plate. That's a pretty good show for those two quarters. We just want to give a little bit and we want a big blessing. It doesn't work that way, does it? We usually get what we put into something. You know what I've always noticed in church life? And, and this could be any church anywhere USA. The people who tend to be the most critical and negative about any ministry are always the people who are the least involved. Hartwell, didn't you find that to be true in the pastorate? Always. Always, you find a negative, critical person in the church and you go ahead and write it down right now. It is always going to be somebody who's standing back at a distance throwing rocks. Well, they uh, in the upper room at least, we know they start thinking, ooh, is it me? Is he talking about me? Yeah. Again, Romans 12 is, is talking about not nominal commitment, but I mean you jump in the deep end of the pool, both feet with clothes on, right? I mean, you jump in. You're ready to swim in the deep end. Nothing half-hearted. And again, he's calling on all of them to present themselves this way. Thirdly, it's to be a physical sacrifice. He says, present your bodies. He's talking about your life. I think Paul's probably combating the Greek view of life which divided up life. They said what you did with your body had nothing to do with what you did with your soul and consequently uh, they would live very immoral lives. But that's not New Testament. 
It matters what we do with our bodies. Romans 6, he said we're to present our body, the members of our bodies to the Lord. And then he says it's to be a perpetual sacrifice, a living sacrifice. In the Old Testament, when a sacrifice was offered, it was killed. Right? And who knows, one day in following the Lord, same might happen to us. But, for now, what is it that we're to offer to the Lord? A living sacrifice. One commentator said it's like every day when we roll out of bed, we're to picture in our minds rolling out of bed and rolling up onto the altar. That's a pretty good mental picture, isn't it? A living sacrifice. And then lastly, he says here, it's to be pure, it's to be holy. Set apart. You belong to God now. You're to live for His purposes. That's what it means to be holy. Again, referring to 1 Corinthians 6, 19, Paul says, Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you've been bought with a price? Therefore glorify God in your body. And so we make a presentation of ourselves. Permanent, personal, Physical, perpetual, and pure. Now what does he say about such a sacrifice? What does he say about such a sacrifice as that? He says it's what? Pleasing to God. You know what that reminds me of? Remember in the book of Malachi? What had happened in the book of Malachi? Does anybody remember? They'd come back from exile and rebuilt the temple, right? They'd been back a while. Now what did they think was going to happen when they went back uh, to the promised land and rebuilt the temple? What they assumed was automatically going to happen? Hmm? Messiah was going to come. But guess what? For years and years and decades and decades and decades and decades, life just kind of got back to what it had been, right? And what did the people start doing with their worship? Offering blemished sacrifices. And they would come into the temple... And they were just kind of like, uh -huh, here we go again. And they became half-hearted in their worship and half-hearted in their sacrifices. And what did God say to them through the prophet Malachi? God told them, I'm not going to receive your offering. I'm not going to receive your sacrifice. Go try offering to your governor what you're offering to me. See if it would be pleasing to him. A half-hearted sacrifice was unacceptable. But Paul is saying here when we make that wholehearted presentation of our lives to God, every bit of us, again, the jumping into the deep end of the pool type commitment, 
That's an offering that is acceptable to God. Anything short of that is unworthy of our Savior. It's a reminder to us that we need to give God our best. Now, notice what he says about this uh, presentation also. Such a uh, presentation is motivated by the mercies of God. He says, I beseech you, brethren, by the mercies of God to present your bodies a living sacrifice. What's the book of Romans been about? The mercies of God, right? Go back and read through the book of Romans. The early chapters of the book of Romans present, first of all, the bad news. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God, and the wages of sin is death. But here's what God's done for us in Christ. And through faith in Christ, we have peace with God. Not only peace with God, but access into His presence. We're filled with the Holy Spirit. There's no condemnation to those who are in Christ, and no separation from the love of God for those who are in Christ. I mean, there's been a big heavenly exchange that's taken place in your life and my life. That's what Paul wants them to understand in the book of Romans, right? They've gone from the deepest pit to the highest mountain peak because of Jesus Christ. Did they do it? No. Did keeping the law do it? No. Did good deeds do it? No. Romans 3, 5 says God presented Jesus as the propitiation for our sins. I guess this is where we should have Dr. Willis's film clip of me preaching about propitiation. The, ba- the baby's nodding off and falls over, right? But it's through Christ, 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 Christ. So what's the book of Romans emphasizing? The undeserved mercy of God. If you're in Christ, you're a recipient of the undeserved mercy of God. Thank God that He doesn't give us what we deserve. But if you're in Christ, you're joint heirs with Christ. And so what Paul is saying here in Romans 12, 1, when you consider the spiritual balance sheet of your life and what God has done, how could you or I do anything different but offer Him our best? Right? And notice here too, he says, such a presentation is your reasonable act of worship. What do we think of worship being? Something we're doing here, right? On Sunday morning, Sunday nights, on Wednesday, singing, praying, giving an offering, preaching. And we say, been to worship today. Been to worship today. But what's Paul saying here? 
every day the way you live out your life as a living sacrifice presented to God is your act of worship. Worship continues all week long as you walk out of these doors. Your worship won't be over tonight in about 30 minutes when we leave. It's only just begun. So it's not just what takes place in here. It's every day in life is my act of worship. My service to the Lord, that wholehearted presentation of myself is my worship with shoes on, you might say. Well, Thirdly, I want you to notice what he goes on to say here in verses 3 and following about how God has equipped us to serve through the various gifts. He says beginning there in verse 3, For by the grace given to me I say to everyone among you not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but think with sober judgment each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Folks, those verses are not to be divorced from verse 1. Those verses describe for us the living out of verse 1 within the body of Christ. You see that? How do we do verse 1 in the body of Christ? By living out verse 3 and following. By serving one another with the gifts God has blessed us with. So God has commanded us to serve and then He's given us everything we need in order to serve. The gifts teach us some lessons. We're part of a body. Just as we have a physical body, we're part of a spiritual body, the church. And spiritual gifts are a reminder to us that we have a responsibility to our brothers and sisters in the Lord. We're not to be lone rangers. We have a responsibility to each other. And that's why over in Philippians 2, Paul says in Philippians 2, So if there is any encouragement in Christ, if any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord with one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each one of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. 
We minister to one another in the body. We live out verse 1 of Romans 12 by utilizing the gifts in the body that God has blessed us with. And so the gifts are a reminder to us, this is how we serve in the body, through the gifts. We live in a day of uh, depersonalization, don't we? But the gifts teach us that all of us are needed. What's the world want to know when you walk into a bank or a hospital? What's the first thing they want to know? What's your, what do they want to know? What's your social security number? We're a number in the world, aren't we? It's easy to feel like a number. No personal significance whatsoever. But folks, lessons on spiritual gifts remind us that just like the cells in our body... We have a contribution to make that nobody else can make. They're grace gifts. They're birthday gifts. When you were born into the family of God through faith in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit gave you at least one gift to serve the body of Christ with. If you're a child of God, you have a gift. You have a spiritual gift. If you say, I don't have a spiritual gift, you must be saying you're not a believer because the Bible says a believer has a gift and needs to use that gift in serving the body. Folks, don't, don't underestimate how important these gifts must be because four times in the New Testament they're mentioned. Romans chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12, Ephesians chapter 4, and 1 Peter chapter 4. Now something doesn't have to be mentioned in the Bible more than one time to be important, but the fact that God mentions them four times ought to kind of make us sit up and take notice, right? I mean, it's kind of like the resurrection narratives in the gospel. All of the gospels conclude with the resurrection. It's like God saying, don't miss this. Jesus isn't dead anymore. He's alive. And so in the New Testament, we're told four different times about gifts. Now, the carrying out of our various gifts allows us to Serve in the world more effectively as the body of Christ. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 12 with me a minute. Look at what Paul says there. Now concerning spiritual gifts, brothers, I do not want you to be uninformed. You know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I want you to understand that no one speaking in the Spirit of God ever says Jesus is accursed. And no one can say Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. Now there are varieties of gifts but the same Spirit. And there are varieties of service but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities but it's the same God who empowers them all and everyone. To each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. Underline verse 7. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. 
For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, to another the utterance of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, to another gifts of healing by the one Spirit, to another the working of miracles, to another prophecy, to another the ability to distinguish between spirits, to another various kinds of tongues, to another the interpretation of tongues. All these are empowered by one and the same Spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills for just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. Look down at verse 14. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members in the body, each one of them as He chose. Then look at verse 21. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet. I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. So what's he saying here? Some principles from this chapter about the gift. There's different kinds of gifts, different kinds of service, different kinds of working. The gifts would be the gift itself. The service is the outcome of the gift being exercised. The working is the process of the gift being worked out. But the underlying principle is it's the same Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, accomplishing all of this. And the gifts are for the common good. Verse 7, we serve one another through the gifts. The gifts are for the common good. Now how are the gifts given? What's verse 11 say? How they're given. They're given according to the sovereign wisdom of God. Who determines who gets what gift? God does. He gives to a body the body of Christ and the members of that body, the gifts that He deems necessary for that church body to serve one another and serve their community. He's the one involved in distributing the gifts. And then He points out that the gifts shouldn't divide. They help us to carry out our service as one body. And so nobody ought to downplay their gift. Nobody ought to downplay their gift and say, what I do in the body of Christ is not important. They're all important. And nobody can say of somebody else, your gift is not important. Is there any member of your body tonight that you'd be satisfied to live without? You want to pluck out an eye and leave it behind tonight in the pew? You want to Take your pocket knife off and your pocket knife out and cut off an ear. Leave it in the pew tonight. You want to chop off a foot or a hand? No. You want to have a whole body, right? And so in the church, we need 
everybody serving with their gift. None of the gifts are unimportant. None of them. None of them. The people who make people feel welcome as they come here. That's very important. Those who take up the offering, those who sing, those who play instruments, those who sing in the choir, our Sunday school teachers teaching, the preaching of the Word, it's all important. Just like every single member of your body is important. And it's through these gifts how we serve. Jesus modeled it. He taught it. Paul taught it and modeled it and reminded us that servanthood is based on our appreciation for being saved. And then God's given us everything in the body, all the gifts, everything that we need to carry out His command. Again, Jesus said in John 17, you will be blessed if you do this. Every one of us in the body of Christ is to be a servant. We all have a place, we all have a ministry, we all have a role, and as the body functions together, we're able to better represent Christ in this community and carry out the ministry that He's given for us to do, right? Servants. All of us in. Jumping in the deep end with our clothes on. That's how we're to be in service. Nothing held back. Nothing restrained, all in for Christ because He was all in for us. I want to ask you to bow your heads a minute tonight and just think about your service. Are you a servant? Do you come to church expecting that People are supposed to look after your needs? Or do you come to church with the attitude, God help me to be used today to be a blessing to you and others? What's your attitude? Do you come with an attitude of eagerness to serve? Or do you do it grudgingly, half-heartedly. Ah, any, any old whatever that I do is going to be good enough. Is that your attitude? Or do you want to present your best to the Lord? What's your attitude as you come to church? That's important. Jesus addressed that as a priority. 
What's your spiritual gift? Do you know what it is? Are you using it to serve? If not, then that's disobedience. That's rebellion. We talk about all the rebellion in the world, and we surely do see a lot of rebellion in the world. But if we're in the body of Christ, not serving the body through our gift, folks, that's rebellion in the household of faith. I wonder if the Lord doesn't look at that more harshly. Are you serving? Knowing your gift, developing your gift, using your gift for the glory of God so we can be the body of Christ that He has called us to be in this community. Have you ever thought that you're not important? That's wrong thinking. Maybe you've thought of others in the church. All we could do without that gift. No. Remember tonight that we are saved to serve. Yeah, we get heaven one day. We get the consummation of our salvation. We get the inheritance that God has promised to us. We get all that. And, and Paul said it's going to even be beyond anything we can think or imagine. But until then, there's a calling on your life and mine. If you name the name of Jesus Christ, you're to be a servant. Basic foundation. This is not graduate school theology. This is elementary, kindergarten stuff. Father, help us to be found faithful. I think of the parable of the talents in Matthew 25 where Jesus told about the master calling the servants to him and distributing to each one according to their ability his gifts. And then he went away on a far journey. He didn't tell them when he was coming back. But one day he came back and when he did, that was evaluation day. And they all had to give an account of themselves and how they had used their gifts. And Lord, one of these days, each one of us will stand before the Bema Seat of Cross and we will be called upon to give account of what you've blessed us with. The Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. Lord, in response to your gracious salvation, 
Help us to understand every day that we are to be servants. And that our service is part of our worship. It's not something separate. Our worship in here just flows right out these doors with whatever we do. May we be mindful of that and live in light of that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a good evening.